My name is Rob, and sitting across from me tonight is Marty, and we're working for the Edge of the Headlights Podcast Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like a corporation because we're recording more than one time this week. Right, right. Well, the reason we're recording extra tonight because we have a really cool interview with this guy by the name of Joe Kistner, and he actually runs the Minnesota Hunt, Minnesota Monster Hunters, I think it's called. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. But he has this really interesting story about this unsolved murder at Wolf Lake, Minnesota. And he's going to explain it to us. And it's really interesting, I think. What about you think, Mark? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's a lot of pretty wild stuff, (laughs) actually, with this. I bet you he'll tell us a lot more. Joe, are you there? Yep, we're here. All right. Go ahead. Tell us what you got for us about Wolf Lake murders. Well, the little webpage thing was... uh, called it Minnesota Legend Hunters. It's on, it was a Facebook thing. We, I kind of started with my daughter at the time. It's uh, on Facebook. It's MN Legend Hunters. And, uh, Sorry about that. I read that wrong. <laughs> oh, that's fine. It's, I haven't, quite honestly, touched the page in a while, which is good <laughs> because I keep getting a few more likes every day. But, <laughs> I'll kind of backtrack a little bit and tell you kind of how I got into this. Um, what I, my goal was with the webpage is to convert it into like a travel log and publish, you know, do a self-published book and uh, finding strange people, places and things around Minnesota um, while you're traveling or, you know, it just happenstance while you're driving through an area, something to refer to. Um, personally, I've never had a lot of money for any kind of travel basically my entire life. So we kind of focused on stuff that was close with close to us, like within a tank of gas. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, of course with my ADD, I start to think ahead. It's like, okay, I put this book out. I need something to follow it up with. Right. So you actually have and a book, book out about this? No, the book, that's my ADD. The book hasn't even been gone out yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> The, the the legend hunters travel thing but of course because my mind jumps ahead and jumps around I thought what would I do for a follow up you need to have a follow up so I started looking at like thinking about Minnesota true crime and I've always been uh, intrigued with missing persons cases and uh, so I started delving into some of them around Minnesota. It started with one that was uh, <clears throat> pretty close to my home. Uh, a guy named Troy Hellstrom that uh, disappeared uh, around the Minnesota River in Belle Plaine, Minnesota. So I started researching that case. I had a little experience with delving uh, into police files. And I got to uh, involved with this Facebook group with a bunch of his high school friends and through that Facebook group uh, one of the ladies in there introduced me to a woman in uh, close to where I live whose grandmother went missing in uh, Becker County back in 1976 or 75 as I got into that um, got with a family and started researching that another family reached out to me through her uh, the granddaughter of this Bernard Rusness, one of the missing people we'll talk about, reached out and asked me if I'd be interested in looking into their case as well. Um, I guess I guess Minnesota. I don't. A good thing we only traveled through there. <laughs> right. At least. <coughs> Excuse me. No, you have a lot of missing people there. That's kind of weird. Not. It's not weird, but it's it's easy country to get lost in. It seems like it's so thick up there and everything. Oh, we're thick, all right. <laughs> we didn't mean that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what—I love South Dakota, and I—I've I, never gotten in. I've never had to look much into the South Dakota missing person stuff yet because I've been so consumed with this stuff going on here. But I—I'll uh, give a hint to anybody who wants to start looking at this. I know there's a lot of <clears throat> online sleuthing and stuff. And a lot of the online information, especially about this case, is incorrect. Um, I ended up obtaining the entire police file, which was a 
another tour and a half because I had uh, county attorneys and stuff fighting me left and right, but by Minnesota state statute, after 30 years, whether a case is closed or not, it becomes public information. I just find it weird, too, that the state's attorney would fight you on a cold case because you think they would want it solved. Oh, and I went to the, the county attorney did, and then I went to uh, the Minnesota uh, Data Practices Office, who was supposed to help people like that. And the woman was a lawyer, and she had no clue about the law itself either. Because, I mean, it specifically states in the statute, you know, at 30 years, it doesn't matter what kind of case it is. And they kept telling me it was open and blah, blah, blah. It was a murder and blah, blah, blah. And after about two weeks of uh, bringing out my inner, inner lit- litigator, <laughs> I just got a message from the sheriff saying, you can come up and uh, pick up, uh, copy the files, whatever you want, whenever you have the chance. So, so was but, any of uh, it redacted out? What was that? Was any of it redacted? Uh, no, none of it was redacted. Um, I did get a case file from a double murder suicide in Wright County here back from 2000. That did have some things redacted out of it, but for the most part, everything was there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the missing woman's file, the grandma got her file and found that <coughs> the case file was missing. Nobody knows what happened to it. Oh, jeez. And then I got the... Uh, I was able to get the case files from this Bernard, Russell, and Peggy McKay through. The county gave up their portion, and the Minnesota BCA uh, refused to. And rather than fighting them, and I, I, you know, you don't want to get in trouble with the State Bureau of Criminal Apparition. So I ended up getting the entire file through one of the family members. Yeah, there's always another so, way around it. <laughs> but what I would warn is that there's so much in there that isn't hasn't been made public and if you're going to try to, to delve into a case off stuff you find at the internet you're probably not accomplish much but in turn if you have enough ambition I'm sure there's plenty of families out there that would be looking for someone to to offer a helping hand yeah, that, there's a lot of families out there like they're missing kids. Mostly, I would think would offer the biggest handout because, but the, you gotta look at it too. There's people out there with good hearts that would help them, but then you get them shady shitholes that are actually just like that. Who's that girl down in the Caribbean that went missing and her parents paid like this guy fifty thousand dollars, and he just that little girl. It was no, it's just like that blonde teenage girl. She oh yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. and like. Family paid this guy like fifty thousand dollars and basically just drank all the whole time, time and yep. didn't do shit. <laughs> yeah, I yeah I, re- I remember that now. Yeah, I can't I can't think of the name for the life of me though. Well, that's I fine. That, that well, little girl that went disappeared down there. Yeah, that's a different case. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but like, what kind yeah. of things did you find that that you don't have to tell us anything, but what did you see like on the internet that's not true compared to the police files that you have? Um, you don't have somebody to... was talking about them uh, going to the store that day. There, like, there's nothing in the file itself about that. Let's see what else was there. Um, dead dogs on the scene. Um, Oh, there's a few other things I have to think about. Would the human skull as a planner be one of them? Well, (laughs) (laughs) that actually was discovered, but um, through people I've talked to, that turned out to be a little bit different. But I guess uh, I can tell you the story. One thing I want to tell everybody, though, I do not have answers to this. I have some speculations, and some of that I'll keep to myself for now because I don't have answers. Right. We talked about that a little bit beforehand. I don't have any answers, so you aren't going to get any right now. Just to give your listeners a heads up, because I yeah. don't irritate some people. Uh, yeah. Well, it's like with any unsolved. If it, if, you, if everybody had the answers, we wouldn't be talking about the case. But there's a lot of intriguing 
rabbit holes we've gone down. And the case itself, just initially, is very mysterious. Um, it was uh, April 3rd, a Saturday night in 1976. There's a farmhouse or farm place located uh, just to the west of a city called Wolf Lake, Minnesota, a very small town, probably just a few hundred people. It's about an hour's drive or so from Fargo. Uh, It's in Becker County, uh, near Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. That's a pretty popular tourist thing. There's a lot of lakes and trees and woods. Um, One night there was a woman driving home from work on the gravel road in front of the house as she was driving by. She noticed there was flames in the northwest corner of the basement near the window. She turned around immediately and went back to uh, the city of Wolf Lake to notify the fire department. And of course, 1976, I think 911 was in its infancy and uh, wasn't available through most of the country. And hell, there was no street addresses in the country back then. It was a rural route, you know, postal address and township and section numbers. Um, that was about 10.45 p.m. And close to 11 o'clock, there was a carload of uh, kids, uh, two guys, four women, um, driving up to Wolf, Wolf Lake to the bar. And they looked off and saw flames in the distance. And they decided to drive up and find out what was going on. They drove up to the drove down the gravel road, found the house, and saw that there were flames coming out of the upstairs window in the northwest corner and underneath the roof line. They turned up the driveway, and uh, interesting thing is they turned up the driveway. Uh, Tony, the guy that was driving the car, noted that the driveway had been hollowed or tilled up, which is kind of common in the country during the spring they'd overturn the they'd turn the dirt over to help it dry and level it out and he even pointed out he almost got stuck going up the driveway because it was so soft that there was no other tire tracks on the driveway leaving or going into the property uh when they pulled up to the house uh they uh tony and his buddy went up approached the door it was too hot. The door was locked, and it was too hot to try to get into the house on the main floor. They went back and shut off the gas, the LP tank. And uh, while those guys were doing that, one of the women in the car got out and was watching them and was approached by a couple dogs. And she just noted that she patted them on the head and then went up to see if she could help. <clears throat> they went back into town, found out the fire department was already on their way out there. By the time the fire department got there, the home was fully engulfed. Um, and at about 1.30 in the morning, uh, Rusty Tallman, who was a state fire marshal uh, who lived fairly close, came out to the scene. And as the fire was dying down, he noticed in the northeast corner of the house in what would be the cistern, so it appeared to be a skull. Once the fire got knocked down enough and the scene cooled, he went in trying to retrieve it, and it kind of started to fall apart, but he retrieved all the pieces with it. And as he sifted through the rubble um, is when they found the body of uh, Brian Rusness, the uh, eight-year-old son that lived in the residence. Uh, They went through the rest of the fire, or the as the fire died down the next day, they sifted through the rest of the um, ashes and and uh, ruins of the house and weren't able to come up with any other bones except for some minor little pieces and stuff. They found change. They found, I think it was noted someplace, surprisingly, they really didn't find any zippers or anything that resembled luggage in the house. Yeah, because that's one of the questions I had. Like, from the articles I've read online, it talks about how there there was no clothes or luggage in the house. I'm like, how could you determine that after fire? Then once you said zippers, it made sense. (laughs) 
Yeah, and it was just, it was curious enough that they noted that. Right. Which uh, I would have never thought of either. Yeah. <laughs> but it shows, you know, they actually found change. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about this scene a little bit, and I'll kind of backtrack here a little bit. As they drove up, um, there was like three three vehicles left at the house. One vehicle had the hood up as if somebody was working on it. Uh, there was keys left in the lock to the uh, pump house and all the outbuildings were left open. And they found out in interviews, this was rather curious for Bernard, uh, Bernard Rusness, the, the father who lived there because he sounds like he's the kind of guy that would lock up doors behind his, you know, every time, every door he went through, he'd walk behind him. And another curious point, but I found uh, the way the fire seemed to start. Uh, the first woman driving by at around 10.45, seeing the, the fire in the basement in the northeast corner, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, the next car coming up there, and it was up the walls and in the attic. I would assume, <clears throat> being it was a very old farmhouse, that it was made of what they I think they call balloon construction. Mm-hmm. So the exterior of the house and the interior house, you have a void in between there. Nowadays, they put, like, fire breaks. Can we pause one second, Joe? (laughs) Sorry about that, folks. Joy's recording in my basement. Okay, okay, please continue the interview. (laughs) Well, now, what uh, we were talking about balloon construction, where there's no fire breaks inside the wall. So a fire in the basement would, I guess... In essence, would travel up the interior of the wall straight up to the roof line, which would kind of explain how fast that fire spread from the basement along the edges of the roof into the attic. The curious thing is, is that unless that fire was something like a spontaneous combustion, like with, uh, um, you know, paint thinner or something. One could surmise that that fire had to be set relatively close to the time that the first woman drove by. Yeah. And the reason I I brought up the dogs, um, in a cold case review, uh, that's another story when I talked to the investigator for that, but he interviewed one of the firefighters, and that firefighter said when he got out there, he... he went and found two dogs locked up in the barn. What? <laughs> oh. Yeah, so it's kind of weird because now between the time that the carload of kids left and the woman was petting the two dogs, it's in her statement, the fire department arriving, somehow the two dogs got in the barn. And locked themselves in. Yeah. Holy I am... I have never talked to the woman with the dogs. I've still had issues. I've talked to other people in the car. I cannot swear that she didn't put those dogs in the barn, but it did not sound like she did. It sounded like she patted them on the head and walked away. Right. So with the fire being started relative that, you know, spreading in such short a time, and now you have the potential that somebody could have still been on the property when uh, between the fire department and the witnesses so something to think about that's something I don't want to think about Joe (laughs) I don't want to think about that shit (laughs) it is yeah it's crazy and also you know like to have you know the listeners think about too what would it take to have uh fire like that and have two people totally disappear cars are there um you know no one was up the driveway and then two and falls into some of the things is like uh there's been rumors of the mob doing something like that but you know or if there was creepy associations that what what would be uh, what would cause them 
to leave an eight-year-old dead in the house and leave with the parents. I mean, if, if you were going to knock somebody off, wouldn't it make more sense that if the whole family died in a house fire? Right. Yeah. It's just kind of a bizarre point to think of. Well, it doesn't make sense if everybody goes down that route. Yeah, it's... <coughs> it, it's one of those... It's, it's something to think about. Um, now, after the fire, they did... Uh, oh, they, it says they searched uh, about a mile around the property in all directions, and their thought was that if somebody tried to escape the fire and they died in the woods someplace or something like that, uh, two curious things then there was a a neighbor um, whose son was out uh, spearing carp or something out in the river uh, ways down the road when he was out looking for his son he stated at around 10 between 10 and 11 he heard three gunshots about two minutes apart and another interesting thing about just um some random facts is there were uh, two ruts in the meadow behind the house like tracks going down the meadow which they most people there thought it was like a hay wagon or something like that but interesting enough a guy who was staying at his in-laws house about a mile away or so um, stated that between 10 and 11 he noticed a low-flying aircraft circling the area. Huh. Um, he's dead right. He's dead now. Um, but I did get to talk to his wife, and his wife, incidentally, was friends with the uh, um, Bernard Rusness's real wife in North Dakota. And so I've never been able to verify anything about that beyond that. I did contact the FF. FA, um, FFA, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I get my federal agencies mixed up, especially <laughs> with Fs. But yeah. Um, the the receptionist was nice, but the uh, the district manager or whatever he is, uh, I left three messages for him to return my call. The records are easy enough to find out. I, what I wanted to do is try to find out registered aircraft in the area and pilots. And there's not that many, believe it or not. Um, so that's another interesting point around that. Um, to go, I'm sorry for all my ums here too. That's fine. <laughs> trying to find it off the top of my head here. What you don't? You're not completely compared like we are. We, <laughs> did you ever listen to our episodes, man? You're fine. You're doing awesome. Oh, I <laughs> and I enjoy your episodes, and you're very spontaneous. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> I'm more spontaneous combustible. Um, uh, some of the things noted in there, there was a few, there's three or four reports of people saying they thought they saw at least Bernard out and about um, the city of Painesville near Moorhead around uh, a little bit after the time of the fire. Supposedly they looked into a couple of them and, uh, found that it was similar but it was not the person and into this uh, sighting thing a little bit I did find a report that during Labor Day of that year um, a gentleman and his wife reported that Bernard and Peggy Bernard Rusness, Peggy McKay the two people that the parents that went missing <clears throat> I don't know if I even really expanded on that part of it but who they were no, yeah, um, that's fine. Met them at a lake, and the two women fished while the guys sat at the car and drank beer. And supposedly, uh, Bernard, the dad, had said that he was working carpentry now. I found no follow up on that phone call, and I've been trying to track down the guy who uh, who was with who supposedly met them. Left a couple messages for him. I haven't got anything back. But it was unclear of whether or not these this couple knew the Rustnesses prior to this, or they just randomly met them and believed they were the Rustnesses. Hmm. There was a, one other note in there um, about a resident of uh, 
Detroit Lakes was watching uh, coverage on the NBC Today show of an earthquake in California. And they believe that they saw Peggy, the missing mom, being carried away injured from uh, one of those scenes of the earthquake or scenes of the earthquake. I could, I, okay, I got a story for you. I went to Vegas I, a couple years ago. And this was, everybody's heard of doppelgangers. Yeah. Okay, Marty knows what exactly what my ex-wife looks like. My wife knows what my ex-wife looks like. We were in Vegas airport getting ready to come back, and I swear to God my ex-wife was in the waiting area sitting like five chairs from me. This woman was the spinning image of my ex-wife. I mean, the only thing different was she had tattoos on her leg. <laughs> it was so <laughs> freaky. I'm like, I, my heart started beating. I'm like, what's my ex-wife doing here? <laughs> so that's what, that could explain away the California thing, maybe. Yeah, and you know, you know, the tattoos could explain. There, people do strange things after divorce. <laughs> I know if I'd see my ex-wife, I'd have an anxiety attack. So. <laughs> That's what I was kind of having in Las Vegas. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, oh my god. Because my kids weren't out of high school yet, and I'm like, what is she doing in Vegas? <laughs> and where are the kids? <laughs> yeah, but back to the story. Sorry. <laughs> well, <clears throat> so those are um, the Today Show. I know that contacted. Excuse me, the police department out there, the sheriff's office. However, I found paperwork of them contacting them, but I've never found a response back. I did try contacting NBC about um, older footage that they might have about that. I did find some footage of that earthquake. Not from NBC, though. NBC basically gave me a form letter telling me to go screw myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so those are a few of the things there. Um, one of those sightings was uh, took place in Moorhead where a mom was driving her kids to school or something. They pulled up next to a, a car. Um, it was like a tan and wood grain Vega, I believe. Nice and car. she noted that the guy looked strange and Bernard had a glass eye and the kids were staring at him. And she said as she looked at the guy, she felt it could have been Bernard. And incidentally, in some of the other paperwork, and I hate to digress and go all over the place here, but <laughs> hell, that's how my mind works. Right. Uh, Bernard worked in a body shop in, at car dealerships for the most part. And Peggy at the time was working for a place called Twin Cities Auto Salvage in Fargo. <clears throat> well, in one of those places, a 1972 uh, tan or golden Vega with wood grain was stolen about three, two to three weeks before the fire. Interesting. So I thought it was kind of interesting in that aspect. A lot of coincidence that seemed to add up. <laughs> yeah, and then... I also noted that Peggy's sister lived probably about five or six blocks away from where that car was seen. Huh. Um, I'm going to backtrack again here a little bit. <laughs> now, we were talking about the skull and the fire. Yeah. And the story with that came from a uh, lady, a great aunt of Peggy's, said that her mom had purchased that for her as a planter. Where in the fuck do you even get something like that? Yeah, exactly. Back, I can see like maybe on the internet nowadays, you right. can find just about anything. But yeah, back but in, I think that crap's expensive too. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I'm just saying, like 1976, where would you, or even before that, before the incident, where would you find some place that would sell you a human skull to be a planner? Yeah. Well, you know, either in a in a crypt or you know. Yeah. But yeah, that that, that, that leads you down the road of like, what kind of gray browers do you know? Yeah. <laughs> Where, what kind of people are you hanging out with that know gray browers? Yeah. See, how much would it be? Um, but going back to Moorhead, I tracked down Peggy's sister. Uh, she lives out in Washington now. And, you know, I called her up and was, if you had any contact with Peggy, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of told her about that story. She was sincere enough, but it was funny because in the conversation, she brought up the skull. Really? And 
she was very adamant that the woman that said the skull was a planter was their great aunt who hadn't even seen them in years and wanted to interject herself in the story. Huh. And she said, my mother would have never bought such a thing, better yet, give it as a gift. She was very queasy about things and would faint at the sight of a pulled tooth. And buying a skull for someone as a gift would be completely out of the question. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, there again, it brings us back to the skull and how that got there, where it was. So was there actually a skull there or not? Yeah, there was a skull. And funny thing is, is it sounded like it doesn't describe it very well. I read the fire marshal's report. Um, the skull was found in, in a cistern area on the northeast corner of the house, but it sounded like digging in the same area <clears throat> is where they discovered the body of Brian Rustness, which this would have been on the, from what I've found, Brian's bedroom was on the west side of the house, and they found the body on the east side of the house. Could they just been mistaken about their directions, maybe? I... I bet... Gather the cistern was kind of where the cistern was. I mean, where it would have been in that kind of corner of like the basement. Okay. But it's still kind of curious. I can't, that's something again, I can't swear to. You know, as to, it was kind of vague, but it almost read that way. Um, so who do you, no, sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. So, was there any suspects they had at the time to like what happened to Brian or where his parents went? To, was there any like within the first 24 hours, did the police come ahead with saying, this is what we're going to do. This is our plan of action and let's go forward. Well, for the first, well, for quite some time, like the first 12 hours or so, they believed the parents were killed in the house. It wasn't until they went through everything and discovered that there was only the one body in the house. And uh, there was a lot of theories that started popping up. Bernard's oldest son um, was about 27 at the time and lived in Fargo. Um, he, he was obviously the most closest person to Bernard. Uh, started to interject all kinds of things that his... Um, Maybe the neighbor that owned the turkey farm across the road killed him and threw him in their grinder. Um, maybe he pissed off somebody at work, you know, with the mob or something like that. And uh, the only thing is about any of those, it, none of it makes sense to leave an eight-year-old house, eight-year-old boy in a house on fire to die and take the parents. Like I said, if you're going to knock somebody off, I want to make it look like, you know, leave them all in the house. And everybody thinks it's a house fire and they die in their sleep and we're all good. Right. Yeah. This just initiates more of a, more of a mystery. The one thing that, uh, um, I'll kind of like sidetrack here too. There was a cold case investigation in 2006 in the Minnesota BCA. BCA would not talk to me, but I found out that the guy who did the cold case, uh, the investigator, was actually a friend of my assistant manager at work. And he put me in touch with him, and he was willing to talk about stuff, which was kind of fun because I had a little bit of a support system there. He was more of a cut and dried guy. And, you know, he said, man, bring me a suspect, a motivation and uh, a means and we'll talk, you know? Um, the only real, what I'd say would be a break in the case is uh, in 1978. I think I've got that letter here. Um, the North Dakota Department of Corrections contacted uh, uh, Becker County and the BCA agents that were working the case. And they sent a letter 
that was written by an inmate, and then the only thing with the inmate is we're given a a name of Terry Terry M. T E R R Y M, and then letter M. And any of your listeners, if you know a Terry M that was in the North Dakota State Penitentiary in 1978, please tell me. <laughs> you can contact us here at the email, and we'll yeah. get a hold of Joe for you. Yeah, because they. Uh, I, I contacted the prison. They say they have no records going back that far. They're lying to you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, maybe. The woman sounded pretty legit. But uh, the letter is uh, Terry M. Uh, the letter is written in the... the grammar and such is rather poor and I think Terry is probably a rather simple person <coughs> uh, Excuse me. but the letter he wrote if I can read it here uh, dear sir a man in North Dakota prison knows who killed boy in Wolf Lake Minnesota Saturday evening April 3rd 1976 well, they were devil specific. cult he is a preacher named Bob Warner and exorcist the devil people lie about him so he goes to prison because he knows them and they killed Jim where who told him preacher them people ate. Okay. That was the letter? Well, one more paragraph. Oh, there sorry. are paragraphs, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> them people killed that woman in McCluskey, cut out her baby and ate it that was in October of 1976 and they cut her up and put her in a large hole in the ground they killed seven people and want to kill Bob Warner because he knows them and tried to kill his mother alright Terry M holy shit <laughs> Cannibalism, Eesh. sacrifice. Well, Minnesota's got everything. Eesh. Oh, man, that's uh, scary as hell. Thing. North Dakota turns out to be a lot more effed up than Minnesota. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we talked about the serial killer, that old guy. Yep. <laughs> oh, God. So, I have this letter, and there's another letter written from this Bob Warner in 1979. Um, it took me a long time to go through the case file and I did find that they followed up on this letter a little bit. It's basically a legal sized notepad sheet with a couple names and a couple times written down on it when they talked to this Bob Warner and uh, apparently he gave them two names um, when it looks like the BCA agents called the people or called the people or the names he gave them. The conversations were less than 10 minutes. Um, I did look those guys up. They were in prison at that time. They're in prison for robbing a Fargo hospital pharmacy. Um, but apparently uh, the BCA felt they had absolutely nothing to do with this and Warner gave them names just to, uh, give them names and from there we'll go to uh, let's see Bob Warner wrote a response to the BCA investigators that came and interviewed him um, that was directed to uh, uh, Mr. Enders who was like one of the uh, assistant wardens in the prison um he writes, uh, please, this is not a grievance, uh, a request asking for a chance to request a mistake or to uh, correct a mistake. In February 26, 1979, law enforcement officials from Minnesota called on me, claiming they had information that I knew something about the murder of a young child near Wolf Lake, Minnesota, which was perpetrated on the evening of April 3rd, blah, blah, blah. For reasons I felt were valid, I refused to help. However, I recognize that was a terrible mistake and a great act of injustice uh, of what I preach against. Yeah, he's a preacher, remember that. Um, and he goes on to ask them to notify 
um, the BCA, they'd like to talk to him again. And, you know, he can't have a ju- he can't seek justice for himself when he seeks, he's withholding it from others. Um, goes on, I'm not, I'm not seeking uh, any favors in return. I intend to win my own case and cannot do this until I've made uh, certain that I have not denied justice for another. Um, in this, he says, let's see. So there, Joe? Yep. Um, yes. uh, I've got to find where it says it now here. You're fine. Well, it's just kind you of weird that. To, that the pastor now, if I if you correct me if I'm wrong, but the pastor's the back the pastor's backtracking. Yeah, and he's basically saying that um, I have very few friends that I can't count on one hand, and I can't afford to lose even what I have. However, one of those friends is involved with this case. Um at least by me telling which people the people who are involved in a crime that cannot be ignored uh please advise officials i i know the identity of the person who received money to arrange or contract murder on a holly guy and a witness who was probably party to the conspiracy so he's basically saying one of his friends was involved with the wolf lake incident and he also had information on a contract murder put on on a woman named Judy or Holly Guy. As I looked into Bob Warner's life, I found... Uh, Hang on one second again. Sorry, folks. You know, the more I looked into this Bob Warner, um, believe it or not, I found a lot of information on him, old newspaper articles. He's been, spent his whole life um, as a kind of a con man or an embezzler. Um, he, I talked to one of his ex-wives uh, that lived lives. Uh, I'm not supposed to disclose her location now, but she's still scared of him. Said he was a nut, never held a job, rarely had friends, or if any. <clears throat> and uh, she also told me that he went to a flea market and found a priest's collar. <laughs> and after he did that, he started calling himself a reverend. That's where this. Uh, Terry M. gets the Reverend Wanner from. And I can see uh, Wanner uh, manipulating a probably more feeble-minded inmate, you know, that probably hangs on his every word. And he's a comment. He's a talker. Oh, yeah. But in this letter, though, I always believe that in anything, there's always some grain of truth. Right. So the BCI, I believe, I don't think they talked to him again and I think they thought that this letter was just a scam on him trying to grab more attention right but when I start to examine it the the uh, contract murder put on this woman as I dug deeper into that I found out that this woman was the daughter of the then like three or four term North Dakota governor oh <laughs> I ended up tracking her down in Minnesota here. I called her up one afternoon. And now if you can just imagine, I don't even remember what I said, but calling up somebody 40 years later and going, hey, were you uh, aware of, you knew anybody that might have put a contract on your head back in the 70s? That's That's a wonderful conversation starter. Yeah. Well, it turns out... She said, well, she said she had never heard that before, but she goes, it could well have been because I was a confidential informant for the North Dakota Drug Enforcement Agency oh. in the late 70s. Oh, dang. Because I put a lot of people in prison. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so, I mean, there that could have very, especially since he brought the name up. Right. There's that to me lends some credibility in some of the stuff he's saying I've tried tracking him down I found him he lives in Mandan North Dakota and he lives under an alias now and I'll kind of 
keep that to myself for now. Right. I guess if anybody around the Mandan area wants to contact me, I can give the name because I've got addresses for them. The phone numbers I've gotten have been no good. Um, I would love to get a hold of him. And, I mean, knowing who he is and what he's been, at least see to what he has to say about it and see if it matches any of the names around there. Right. Now, this letter opened up a lot of stuff. I know in the 70s we've talked that, you know, people blame the satanic panic yep. and stuff, and that everybody, you know, in the 80s was, you know, Ozzy Osbourne. And it was people uh, being hypersensitive and uh, Geraldo Rivera marketing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but <clears throat> the more you look back at things, there was a lot of dark things that happened um, in those 70s and 80s. Yep. That, you know, even though some things could have been exaggerated, that still happened. Now, when I started to look at this aspect of the case, there's a few other things that kind of fell into place. <clears throat> there is a, a note in the file um, written by two people it gives their or about two people it gives their names one was a former co-worker of uh, Bernard and uh, the other woman I'm not sure how associated she was but in this note these notes taken by the uh, interviewing deputy it uh, says that the first one with the guy uh, that they talked to, um, he claimed that Busness's uh, kid put a, he a dead heifer on a brush pile, found one week later with its organs out. Um, then below that, a woman said she heard rumors of devil worship and that he was to make an offering of his family. Oh. <laughs> not sure where that all came from but I did find in other documents that there was indeed a dead calf found on the property the year prior uh, that was mutilated on a brush pile huh. well so far involved in this case we have gangsters contract hits and now the cult so the only thing we're missing is aliens <laughs> and big you know that well that might explain it a little easier <laughs> <laughs> But um, there's also, when I originally went up and started talking to the sheriff and stuff, uh, years, a few years back when I was doing some of Minnesota Legend Hunters research, I found a uh, bulletin board posting about, you know, spooky crap. And a guy from like the Vergas Detroit Lakes area said that there was a cult of uh, hooded robed people running around in the woods around Vergas Trail, which incidentally, there's also something called the Vergas Hairy Man that's supposed to be a Bigfoot in those woods, too. I never really found anything else about it, but when I went up <clears throat> to meet with the sheriff, a little bit older than I am, and I we started talking, and I brought up the thing about these uh, hooded people out in the woods, and he goes, oh yeah, I remember those. You know, we used to call them the white sheets. Supposedly, they'd go out and jump out at cars and, you know, and run around in the woods, which was kind of curious. I'm going, okay, that's interesting to know. The next day, I met with the uh, son of Bernard Rusness, one of his sons, and we were talking, and I had brought up, uh, yeah, I was talking to the sheriff, and he, we were talking about the white sheets, and he goes, oh, yeah, I remember the white sheets. He goes, I actually think I found their... Uh, their uh, their building or their compound that they that they were at out in the woods. I think it burnt down now, but we drove across it one day when we were four wheeling. Curious enough, huh. <laughs> as I'm going through the uh, some of the cold case reports from 2006, as we talked about earlier, um, 
Kempe, the, the retired BCA agent that I was talking to, interviewed a guy who wasn't around during the fire, but he had actually snagged something in Wolf Lake and tore off a piece of flannel shirt that he took up on his fishing hook. So, uh, At the end of his statement, he makes a comment about, oh, something strange that happened in 1980. He said, I was fishing on the lake with my son, my brother, and my nephew. And we heard somebody yelling, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. We looked up on shore and saw two hooded, robed figures, one carrying a lantern on the shoreline. And he said that when we got back to shore, they were gone. We couldn't find them. Fuck that Ooh. shit. <laughs> well, it, 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 I'm like going, shit, that's messed <laughs> up. Because this had nothing to do with the things that, you know, I talked to the sheriff about. This is totally random. Told to a BCA agent who, you know, you're going to be a more serious craft if you lie to a BCA agent than if you lie to a sheriff's deputy. You know? Yeah. So that kind of surprised me. That was like really freaking random. And then you start looking into the, you know, a mutilated calf. Um, which that brought me down a whole nother trail. I started looking into, you know, back in the mid-70s, there was a series of cattle mutilations across Minnesota into South Dakota. Yep. Um, those were investigated primarily back there uh, under the office of the U.S. Attorney General by, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay, they were investigated by a guy, by J. Allen Hynek on, at the request of the U.S. Attorney General's office and a guy named Donald Flickinger was an ATF agent who had worked with Hynek in the past. I had to actually I researched a little bit and I found uh, Flickinger, Hynek's dead, but I found Flickinger living out in uh, Roundup, Montana. Oh, he was in Billings, Montana. I'm sorry. He was in Billings. I actually called him up and talked to him on the phone for a little bit. And uh, he had no real cases that they studied up in that area. The closest one was like in Fergus Falls, which is uh, probably, I think, 45 minutes away from Detroit Lakes. Yeah. And he said uh, one thing he did note about the cases in Minnesota and South Dakota versus the ones in Colorado, Arizona, Four Corners area. He said these were different. They've always been different. Um, while they're investigating that, he was investigating these. Uh, two gentlemen, one in Texas, one in Oklahoma, that were in prison, both were part of a gang or a group that claimed that they were responsible for these uh, cattle mutilations. Um, they called themselves the Sons of Satan, and I don't know officially if that was uh, the motorcycle group and the motorcycle gang, or it was a separate group called Sons of Satan. Right. They actually brought both of those men up here to question them and <clears throat> kept them at two county jails here. That's a whole other book in itself because... Uh, <laughs> One of them actually escaped while they were here and took a, in the Carver County Jail and took a Chaska cop hostage and stole the squad oh. car. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, Flickinger believed he was, he was probably exaggerating or lying about a lot of the stuff. But incidentally, um, I read this in an article and I talked to him about it. Flickinger used to live in Coon Rapids, Minnesota back then. He woke up one morning, went out to his garage, and saw the word stop written on his garage door in blood. Oh, damn. And, dude, I, I asked him, he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was written in blood, but he, like, never did think much of it. <laughs> See, you're talking about, okay, I got to interject here. You're yeah. talking about the white cloaks up in um, Wolf Lake. Have you ever heard of the story of the ones in Montevideo? Not directly in Montevideo. Monticello, I've heard some stuff. But no, that would be very interesting. When I was in high school back in the mid-80s, it was toward the tail end of the satanic panic, there was reports of them coming out of Montevideo, and they'd actually walk down Main Street in Montevideo and do their little thing and walk back off into the woods. Oh, that's wild. 
And the sheriff and the sheriff department and cops didn't do anything about this. Let them go about their business. Well, some of the stuff I found in, uh, like Bismarck, is that the problem is is that if they're you can't infringe on their freedom of religion. Oh yeah, yeah, true. Type thing, and that I agree with that. Has a little bit to do with it. One of the other bunny trails I went down with this was listening to another podcast. It was a guy named Jim Rothstein was on there. He was a retired New York detective uh, who then became mayor of a town called St. Martin, Minnesota. Uh, Jim worked a lot in human trafficking back in the 70s. That was around the same time as Son of Sam. Worked with some of the Son of Sam stuff. The guy's got some incredible stories. I actually went and visited his house a couple times sat with him. On this radio show though, um, the theory uh, mostly initiated in like a book uh, about Maury Terry called The Ultimate Evil. That's also there's a Netflix, a recent Netflix show on no, about the, uh, the, Excuse uh, me again, I gotta interrupt. People are gonna hate this. But like that Ultimate Evil book about the son of Sam is that the one with the dog on the front? If I remember right. Um, it, was, it just came back into print. It might have been the original print. Yeah, yeah because it, the talk to that basically the, a reporter wrote the book and it says, "If I died, I have transcripts that are going to get released. If I on my un, unexplained death or something." I think I read that book. I don't know. I mean, Maury Terry died like five years ago, I think. And in that book, um, he claimed, and Berkowitz claims that Berkowitz is responsible for two of the murders but members of the group he was involved with uh, committed the other ones and I mean there's a whole bunch of stuff reasons that that theory goes into that theory and there was a Netflix uh, like a six part series called Sons of Sam um, that kind of went into Maury Terry's book a little bit Um, that was just recently released like I don't know a year ago maybe (laughs) kind of interesting but uh, Rothstein said in this interview that two of the Son of Sam shooters were from Minnesota. One oh. from the Twin Cities and another one from Detroit Lakes. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and when you look at Son of Sam was, uh, um, like I said, again, back 76, 77. Yep. This was April 76, right prior to it. And uh, Maury Terry calls this guy in his book Larry Malenko, which isn't his real name. I I know his real name. I I guess I'll leave that. Right. And it's, right. you can find it if you really look for it. But um, that guy was originally from Butte, North Dakota, and he was involved. If you look him up, he was involved. He got busted for a lot of meth manufacturing. And uh, him and his wife are now are kind of like New Agers. They raise organic crap. Hello. But he was supposedly a member of this cult. And a lot of it goes back to something called the the Process Church or the Process Church of the Final Judgment. Oh. Marty gave me a weird look, and I'm like, yep, I've yes. heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, they're, they were heavily, uh, they had a big influence in North Dakota. And they, there's stuff that goes like I said Maury Terry wrote a book about it um so I've kind of delved into that that a little bit with the help of uh, Jim Rothstein who's been giving me a lot of stories too the guys you you wouldn't believe half the stuff he's been involved in and I'll tell you what uh yeah talking with Jim and a couple other people, I thought the world is a much, much darker, darker place than I ever, ever imagined. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, we, yeah. I, we totally agree with you there. <laughs> See, now uh, you got all this information. You should write your own book, Joe. Then we'll have you well, back on after you write your book. <laughs> well, hopefully there's a conclusion at some point. Right. I know we're kind of babbling on here. <laughs> have you ever listened to our episodes before? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of our bread and butter, man. But you're, you know what? 
it's any babbling that goes on is very entertaining. <laughs> well, we that's hope. One thing too, uh, a little thing I will give you guys credit for a couple guys that decided to start a podcast in a basement. You're very entertaining. You're likable. Your interactions are are very good. Thank and you. I, I've been Thank very you. impressed. We, we appreciate that. <laughs> And so, I mean, now that you wanted to talk to me, it just impressed me a little bit more. Sweet! <laughs> We're going to win him over slowly. <laughs> Not that it will impress your listeners any. Oh, our listeners are always impressed with us. That's why we have so many. In my own head, you there. Know, I'd be... There's other bits and pieces to this story. Believe me, there are so many rabbit holes I've gone down, and they've yeah. all been very, very interesting. Um, right now... Um, I have a few people that if I have the time, I need to try to contact. It's the thing that sucks is that my time is limited. And I know if I call those people, it might be the wrong number, but I need to have time to call, to talk to them when I call. Right. So that's been tough. And I, God, I have been so fortunate finding people that are, and I tell them straight out who I am, what I actually do for a living has nothing to do with this right and the people that are willing to talk to me and dump their guts about stuff has been incredible well hopefully you get that one person that's just like your little keystone that unlocks everything that'd be so awesome i think there's just a couple phone calls away from that and the thing is too i've been you know it's just a matter of trying to collect uh connect names and places uh in the background there's a lot more to this, um, not quite as entertaining. <laughs> like I said, I believe I, I I have a person I believe was at the very least has knowledge of what really happened. Right. And if not had something directly to do with it. But I have no way of verifying it. Any of that right now. Yeah. Um but yeah, you know what? If any of your listeners were familiar with uh, North Dakota, some of those things and uh, some of the things we talked about, um, I'd be happy if they'd want to send a message, drop a line, or yeah, or, uh, they're more than willing to contact us at, at a podcast email. I'll put yep. a, our email address in our link like we normally do after every show. Yep. And I'll try to forward you guys some documents, and uh, maybe at some time, I don't know if that on your main page if it's possible to post documents in the notes or not we'll figure it out <laughs> but you know just something for somebody to read yeah. like I said I it's you know if they want to talk and give me their ideas and theories I've studied this case went through thousands of documents phone calls people it's hard to go back and explain maybe why something might not be right but uh I'd be willing to hear anybody's thoughts on those things or any information they might have had from that area or, or the Bismarck, North Dakota area, Fargo area at that time would be great. Yeah, so we'll have people, if you're listening to this episode, please, if you know any information, please send it our way. Yeah. And we'll get it to Joe. And uh, if nothing else, uh, if they'd like to check out the Facebook pages, MN Legend Hunters, Minnesota Legend Hunters, and I'm sorry I've not touched it for about a year. I have plenty of things that I need to put up there, but it's a matter of uh, <clears throat> finding the time and doing it. And a lot of that's just an excuse because part of that time I'm sitting on the couch watching TV. <laughs> well, you're like me and Marty. We're, we work 40-plus hours a week. We know we know your pain. <laughs> when you get home, you just want to get home and sit down. Well, I only work probably 40 hours a week, but my... The place I work makes it seem like 48. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. All right. Well, it was really nice talking to you, and definitely we're going to have you back in. We're going to talk about your Minnesota legends. Yes. More on that stuff. We'll go into random stories and that. So is there anything else you want to promote before we cut you off? Uh, no, that's a, that's about it. I, I appreciate being here. I appreciate the opportunity, and I appreciate your listeners' patience. Oh, man, we appreciate having you on. Appreciate you having us on. And er everything, like I said, with with other stuff, we'll get into on the show at some point. Some other stuff you've kind of uh, clarified for me this actually, this last week with us. Yeah, that's an interesting. If we get stories or something, we can uh, get into that a little bit because I think that information might help a lot of people as well. Yeah, 
I, I agree. Yeah, I agree what you guys are talking about off air that no one else is really interesting. I, right. I got part of it. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll, 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 I'll catch you up here. In, in I don't day. want you to catch me up. Next time we talk to Joe, which hopefully right. will be soon again, then we'll just, I'll just listen. All right. All right. Well, thanks for everything, Joe. We'll talk to you later. Right. Thanks, guys. <laughs>